0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to our very first Resources Radio live recording. I'm your host, Kristen Hayes. Uh, our regular listeners will know that Resources Radio is a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. This week, we're trying something new and recording the podcast in front of a live, albeit virtual, audience for released next Tuesday. So we'll largely be sticking with the format of our regular podcast series, where I ask our guest a range of questions for about half an hour. But this live recording format also allows us the opportunity to take some audience questions. Uh, and in addition to being lightly edited for the podcast, this public webinar is being recorded and will be posted on our website afterwards. So just as a quick reminder, uh, Resources for the Future is an independent, nonprofit research institution based in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. So as your invitation to this event noted, uh, our Resources Radio Live series will focus on topics that lie at the intersection of the COVID-19 pandemic and energy and environmental issues. Uh, There's a lot of interesting research underway in this area, and while it's still too early for most definitive results to be released, even early findings can help shed light on important trends. Uh, So to kick off the series, today I'm talking with Steve Tsikala, who is an assistant professor at the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy, at least until next week, when he will be moving to the Department of Economics at Tufts University. He's also a faculty research fellow at the National Bureau of Economic Research. Steve undertook one of the earliest looks at electricity demand during the peak of the pandemic lockdowns in the US. And uh, as reported back in April in the New York Times. So I'm very fortunate to have the opportunity to revisit that work with Steve today to ask him how the numbers have evolved in the subsequent two months. Uh, And because this is a live recording, as I mentioned, you also have a chance to ask Steve questions. I would encourage participants to submit their questions at any point during the webinar to the Q&A box, which they can find located at the bottom of their screen. Um, We'll be monitoring those questions coming in, and we'll try to get to as many as possible after Steve and I talk for a bit. So thank you all for joining in this inaugural Resources Radio Live recording. And with that, let's dive in. Steve, welcome. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us on Resources Radio.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me.
0: (laughs) Yeah, uh, you're a trooper for joining us in this experimental new format, too. So Uh, I always like to start with an introduction uh, to our audience, of our guest. So can you just tell us a little bit about your background, um, personal, professional, and what drew you to working on issues related to energy and the environment?
1: Sure. Uh, so I'm from the Hudson Valley in New York, about halfway between Albany and New York City. Uh, I was an undergrad at U UChicago. Uh, I did my PhD in economics at Harvard. Then I turned around and went back to the University of Chicago and have been there for the past few years. Uh, And as you mentioned, uh, start at Tufts next week. Uh, So my interest in energy and environmental topics has been sort of uh, for a combination of different reasons that there have been a, a few different pieces that really come together nicely in energy and environmental economics if you're interested in the topic of regulatory design, as, as I am. So a lot of times there's some kind of market failure, either a firm is exerting market power or polluting or any number of reasons that uh, sort of gives a, a a starting point to start thinking about what sort of regulatory intervention should we undertake uh, in order to start reducing this harm. And I mean, as it turns out, of course, exactly how you decide to do that, the design of the regulation uh, is really important to determine whether that Intervention is actually going to improve welfare at all uh, it can on net reduce it it can have all kinds of unintended consequences uh, and so I find that uh, energy and environmental economics is a really nice setting for studying those kinds of problems where there are real stakes right there are really important okay. questions okay. and Uh, And the answer is important for determining human health and uh, well-being and and any other uh, sort of situation in which there are are important stakes.
0: Mm -hmm. Okay, great. Well, today, the focus of our conversation, as I mentioned, is on electricity demand during the pandemic. So I guess I just wanted to start with a high-level overview of your findings. Can you just tell us, you know, obviously a number of communities were under pretty strict lockdowns during this period. Electricity demand changed pretty substantially. What did you find about um, about the ways in which it did change?
1: Yeah, uh, so it changed uh, very abruptly. Uh, nearly, it, it actually... It, it started before the lockdowns themselves. Uh, and so this has been an important uh, and somewhat contentious point about, you know, should we uh, lift the lockdowns uh, if the lockdowns are the reason for all of this economic disruption? That if only we lifted the the lockdowns, uh, things would get better. That uh, electricity consumption actually started declining uh, a bit before the lockdowns themselves began uh, and have persisted uh, after the, the lifting of lockdowns. Themselves. So uh, in the United States, um, it has settled at about 8%, an 8% drop in electricity uh, reduction, uh, say through April and, and May. Um, and there's, uh, you know, differences across the country that, that we can talk about in a minute. Uh, and uh, I've also been looking in the EU as well. the EU was in an even bigger drop, um, more like 13 or so. Um, And that has, it sort of came back from about 13% relatively quickly and has been on a sort of slow, steady recovery uh, since then to, I think it's now at about minus seven.
0: Hmm. Okay. All right. Um, I guess one other contextual question that I wanted to ask you is sort of in what way is electricity use a good proxy for overall economic activity? Uh, And in what ways do we need to be cautious about extrapolating those findings too much? So, you know, what are the caveats that you would want to give? I know uh, researchers always want to make sure they're being as precise as possible. So what are the caveats you'd want to give? Yeah, this
1: is a really important one. Uh, Because there's sort of two different reasons to be interested in this. I think one is if you're just interested in the uh, energy sector, you would like to know what's happening in the energy sector. What are the implications for emissions, pollution, that sort of thing. Uh, And then another is what does this tell us about the health of the economy? Because if we're writing, you know, $2 trillion uh, pieces of legislation, while we're flying completely blind um, regarding the underlying state of the economy, then if we can learn something about the underlying state of the economy, uh, more or less in real time, then that's really valuable. Uh, and so I think one of the the major caveats and one of the things that, that I've been focusing on uh, a lot lately is that the, the COVID shock is uh, a particular kind of shock relative to, say, prior economic shocks, uh, one that has had people uh, working from home quite a lot. And so it's, in fact, really just starting now. It was in the past couple of weeks where it looked like there was this sudden miraculous recovery uh, in the U.S. economy. We'd been down by about uh, 7%, as I described before. And then within a course of two weeks uh, or even a week, uh, shot up to basically back to normal. uh, And we're like what is going on here? And it's looking like, and and so this is not final yet, but it's looking like uh, this is because uh, people are working from home and it's really just in those two weeks that anyone has really started firing up their air conditioners in any meaningful way and it takes more electricity to cool down everyone in their homes because they're cooling their entire homes than bringing everyone into offices and cooling those offices while they're home. Uh, aren't being chilled quite as intensively. Uh, and so trying to separate this uh, these sort of offsetting forces that in the summertime, I think there's actually going to be um, higher electricity consumption relative to normal um, because there are going to be some commercial spaces that are like starting to cool or some people are coming to the office and you need to run the air conditioners if people are coming into the office really at all, whether it's you know at 20% capacity or at 100% capacity. And at the same time, everybody else is still home and they're running their air conditioners from home. Uh, And so that just means that there's a lot more cooling going on.
0: Interesting. Um, yeah, I think this question of how to sort of break down your findings by region, by type of customer, whether it's you know commercial real estate, uh, residential real estate, um, is a really interesting part. So I wonder if you could speak a little bit to how you were able to disaggregate the data and then how much those variations, either between, again, type of customer or by region, how much those matter? Are there big differences across those?
1: Yeah. So the, the data that I'm using is called system load. It is a measure of how much electricity is being taken off the grid. Uh, and sort of how finely you can observe that varies a lot uh, by region. Uh, so it's it's hourly or even sub-hourly in some places, just about everywhere. Uh, but in New England, for example, the zones are states themselves. Um, New York City, you can observe separately from different zones in the New York, uh, it's called ISO, Independent System Operator. They're the auctioneers who are uh, keeping the lights on every day by running auctions and deciding which power plants are going to operate. So you've got that sort of variation, but you also have absolutely massive areas, the Tennessee Valley Authority or uh, markets in the Midwest where they don't really uh, report sort of specific zones. And instead, you're, you're actually seeing like a share of the U.S. electricity consumption in that number. Um, and so there, there are many differences in how fine an area you can monitor. Um, but a relatively common, uh, pattern, uh, that at this point is sort of like the signature pattern of a drop, uh, at the end of March, um, bottoming out around, uh, Easter. Um, and then depending on how warm it's been in the past couple of weeks, uh, really coming back. Um, Now that's all at the system level. So that's residential consumers, commercial consumers, industrial consumers. It's everything being taken off the grid is being built into that number. Uh, And so one of the the other latest things that I've been trying to pull together is that I've been working with uh, a firm called InnoWatts that works with utilities monitoring uh, meter data. Uh, and getting some data on residential consumption uh, because what's happened there is there's been an increase in residential consumption. So uh, the numbers we've looked at so far in, in Texas are about a uh, eight to ten percent increase in residential consumption. And as cooling starts to become more intensive, uh, well, then you're going to start to see even more increases in in residential uh, consumption. That's going to have a, uh, some implications for consumers in the summer as they think about, you know, you have an employment shock. and Now your bills are going up, too, because you're running your air conditioners because you're at home uh, all day. Um, it also means that the drop in commercial and industrial consumption is even larger than this overall, say, 7% number that, that we've been looking at, because it's being masked somewhat by an increase in consumption from uh, people working from home. Hmm.
0: Can I ask you one semi-spontaneous question about that um, issue you just raised? So I I live in Washington, D.C., and we've had several notices from Pepco, the local utility, that bills are going to be postponed for a while. Uh, And so is this something that as you're thinking about sort of the policy implications or the utility implications here where you're recognizing that the employment impacts are still very much um, affecting the U.S. economy, but as you said, you know, consumer demand is is increasing continues to increase. And and so do you see that policymakers have a role in continuing to kind of mitigate the effect on consumers who may have lost their jobs?
1: Uh, I know I'm putting you on the spot. Yeah, here, but no, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I mean, I would expect that, you know, towards the end of the summer, uh, m- my guess is that there's going to be a lot of bill shock. Um, And the fact that it is clearly related to uh, what's going on may provide the basis for um, for governments um, helping people with their electricity Mm -hmm. bills. Mm -hmm. Uh,
0: So. Of course, you originally did this research back in April. That was when I think some of the original results were published. Um, we've now had time, obviously you've had time to continue this work, but others have also had a chance to undertake additional studies. So I guess, could you just reflect a little bit on, as the world has uh, has also engaged on this topic, how your results compare to what others have found? Were there any surprises in looking across the body of work as it's evolving?
1: Yeah, uh, so I've uh, people have sent in to me uh, some similar studies in different different settings. Uh, Brazil, uh, my colleague at at Chicago for the next week, uh, Fiona Berlig has been doing some work uh, on India that has uh, shown similar patterns, Uh, Switzerland, um, uh, Canada, a few other places where it's sort of largely uh, consistent with uh, electricity consumption falling uh, pretty quickly. Uh, As the disease spread. Yeah, Hmm. I think Mm -hmm. really, at at the moment, the surprising thing that I'm really still trying to uh, fully get a handle on to separate how much of the recent recovery is like actual real, you know, an increase in economic activity. And that's the reason that uh, electricity consumption is coming back, separating that out from uh, cooling.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And maybe just to follow up on that a little bit, how how are you thinking about answering that particular question to sort of shed light on uh, yeah. the underlying effects? I, again, I know you're sort of no, in the middle no, of no. this, but how are you thinking about it?
1: Yeah. So uh, he, this is a setting in which having a uh, high frequency data is is really useful i have hourly data and so you can see how electricity consumption is changing over the course of the day uh, as weather fronts move through as it's cooler from one day to the next and and so i mean even in the raw data if you plot cooling degrees, which is sort of the number of degrees, uh, I think in Fahrenheit, it'd be above 65 or 68 degrees, something like that. Uh, The number of degrees above that baseline against the changes in electricity consumption for what looks like an increase over time. Uh, one figure is effectively a shadow of the other. It's like, it's very clear. It jumps out that these two things are intertwined. Um, And so it's just going to be a matter of uh, accounting for the extent.
0: Hmm. Okay. Um, Maybe just to build on that too, are there ways in which you're thinking about marrying other types of data together? You know, some of the things that I feel like people have looked at combinations of electricity data with mobility data. And, you know, are there other sort of big picture questions that you're hoping to answer where this might be a foundation, but ultimately um, you could combine these findings with something else to give us kind of a more robust picture of what's happening?
1: Yeah, um, sort of in in that direction, the the main paper that comes out of this, I I think there are sort of a few different pieces because there are really different, interesting uh, questions to answer, but the the main one is about using electricity to monitor the, the health of the economy, and so uh, actually looking back in time at what happened during the Great Recession hmm. mm-hmm. uh, to learn what we sort of could have known about the underlying state of the economy. Given the data that were available at that time, while we were still flying blind and putting together the stimulus package and that kind of thing. uh, Using that to, in combination with, you know, separating out cooling and all these other kind of things running around in the background with COVID, uh, being able to monitor what's happening right now. I think uh, at the end of the day, that's the most important thing that could come out of this is better information about what's happening in the economy right now. Uh, I think it's becoming increasingly clear that that the situation isn't going to be a one-time shock, and then we're done, and then do things look fine? Okay, things look fine. Mm-hmm. Uh, the wave has passed, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. that it's going to, uh, it's going to ebb and flow. And as it's doing that, um, you know, we'll need to be on top of what's happening uh, to the economy itself.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I've seen some interesting graphic representations of what a recovery might look like and sort of the the changing uh, illustrations of maybe we've moved from a, a V-shape to a nike swoosh and now there's some reverse radical i don't know there are all sorts of sort of predictions but but i guess what i'm hearing is that um The work that you're doing can, in fact, help inform what we know about the recovery pattern. And so it's one piece of key data that can shed light on what that recovery is going to look like. Is that a fair assessment? For (laughs) sure. Okay. Well, so this is the point in the podcast where I ask you to speculate on a highly uncertain future. So I know I'm I'm putting you on the spot again. Um, But given what you've seen about changes in electricity demand during the lockdown, plus what the recovery in demand has looked like so far. Does this period represent any sort of structural change for the electricity sector? Uh, and if so, you know, in what ways are these patterns that are likely to persist in some way? Um, again, this sort of plays into the, what does the recovery pattern look like? But feel free to use your crystal ball as best you can and would like to and speculate on that.
1: I think one thing that's been uh, interesting about this shock for the grid, so this is no longer you know, like what's happening in the economy, but you know, sort of what do we learn about running the electricity grid itself, uh, is that I think it has foreshadowed Uh, what running a grid with higher renewable penetration Mm. is going to look like. Interesting. because you know when a lot of times when say when a hurricane makes landfall one of the main concerns is uh, what are the tides going to be is it going to arrive is the storm surge going to arrive when it's low tide and therefore the two sort of offset each other a bit and it won't be as bad or if that storm surge hits when it's high tide we're really in a lot of trouble we're really getting the worst of it and so this shock happened um, there there's a, uh, a natural flow to electricity consumption over the course of the year. That it's very high in the summertime when people are cooling. Uh, it tends to be higher in the winter when people use, uh, many people use electricity for heating as well. And it's really during the spring and the fall that electricity consumption tends to be really low. And they use those periods to do annual maintenance on plants and and that kind of thing. The reduction in electricity consumption that we saw happened like right in the heart of when electricity consumption was already low. So it was sort of, you know, flipping signs, but the hurricane arriving right at high tide uh, was that we had this reduction when it was already really low. And when you have a grid where renewables are going to produce electricity at any price, so they were effectively unimpacted by this, short of the prices being lower, but their output was largely unaffected, Uh, that really put the hurt on fossil fired uh plants gas and and coal um and i think gave a lot of system operators a preview of how it's going to be managing a grid with a you know more modest percentage of renewables uh because you're getting all of this power from uh renewable sources and there really isn't too much consumption uh to soak that up uh and really less room uh to be firing up coal-fired and gas-fired plants uh, to meet demand. Hmm,
0: interesting. Okay. So, so it sounds like there's some important lessons that whether it's system operators or utilities themselves can be learning here, but whether this leads to any long-term structural change in the use of plants is hard to predict at this point.
1: Yeah. Um, I mean, it, I, I shouldn't immediately dismiss the possibility Um because one really fascinating thing that happened, uh, I mean, the origins of this project uh, was actually long before COVID, when I was first putting electricity data together. If you just sort of plot the time series of electricity consumption, it was sort of increasing in lockstep with the economy over time. Uh, And then the Great Recession hit, and electricity consumption fell by about 7%. um, And then you'd expect it to sort of come back and then you know the economy has grown 24% or something like that since the depth of the great recession but from 2010 to 2017 electricity consumption fell by another 7% Hmm. And that is completely unprecedented in a modern economy to have this decoupling of electricity consumption uh, and economic growth. Um, that happened that largely
0: due to increases in efficiency. Is that why?
1: So that—that's what I'm looking forward to one day going back to. I <laughs> okay. was working with with Lucas Davis on uh, on exactly this question when, okay. when COVID hit, okay. and now mm-hmm. it's you know back burner because it was you know why why is we're using the present tense of why. Is Is electricity consumption declining in a growing economy? And well, it's not growing anymore. Uh, and so (laughs) that's not today's question. Um, but I think ultimately there is that question of why exactly, uh, what was the, what have been the main drivers of this decoupling of electricity consumption and economic growth? Um, and to what extent, uh, possibly, um, the shock of the great recession played a role in it. it because if it did, we can start to ask, well, uh, what may be the long-term implications for the sort of longer-run growth or lack of growth in electricity consumption uh, given the current shock?
0: Very interesting. Two follow-up questions for you then. One is, does that also apply, has that decoupling also been seen in other types of energy use? Is it, you know, electricity has been decoupled from economic growth, but the use of uh, you know, other types of energy for other processes has yeah. continued to grow. Uh,
1: that I'm not sure. Uh, okay. Yeah, okay. that I'm not sure about. No.
0: Well, someone in the audience. There you go. Yeah. There's a yeah. someone else can report back to me afterwards. That'd be great. But, but yeah, that's a, that's very interesting. And I had another. I had a second question for you too. Well, hopefully it'll come back to me, but that's very. Yeah, thanks Steve. This is really helpful. So I do want to quickly pivot and see if we have any audience questions coming in. Um, To do that. I'm just going to quickly look at the Q&A and ooh, so a very interesting question from one of our um, attendees. So with the increase in residential consumption, could there also be an increase in the risk of brownouts? Are we changing patterns of consumption in a way that could lead to any sort of systemic risk about availability?
1: Yeah, uh, so this has been a a question that a number of people have been working on in the context of electric vehicles, of thinking about uh, what changes we need to make to the distribution system. So after power is generated, it goes on to the bulk transmission system. It comes off of the bulk transmission system into the local distribution network. Uh, And you need to have enough capacity on the local transmission network to handle um handle that power that has historically been a one-way relationship that's changing now with uh with rooftop solar and so sort of the combination of a lot of rooftop solar and potentially electric vehicles is going to put new kinds of stresses on the the transmission system um if there is a, a more cooling than there has been historically then even if we have enough power plants to generate all of that power uh thinking about uh do we have enough local uh distribution capacity local transformers the stress on on that uh system uh I, an interesting question mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. that actually reminds me of the second thing that i wanted to ask you too because it seems like um You know, in general, I feel like part of the climate policy or the climate conversation, maybe not so much the policy side, but the sort of long term vision for how we would reduce emissions in this country involves electrifying a lot of things that to date haven't been electrified. And so I guess I don't know if you have any comments on kind of that trend in the context of what we're seeing now, uh, whether that could actually be easier because... Well, I guess renewable prices were low anyway. But you know, sort of, are there interplays between that economic driver to decarbonize and what we're seeing now that that come to mind for you?
1: Uh, not that come to mind off the top of my head. Uh, I'm, uh, I think more or less, I'm on board with electrifying things. I, I see the value <laughs> uh, of of electrifying things, um, but yeah, not off the top of my head.
0: Yeah, I think that'll definitely be another thing to watch to sort of how these interplay over time. Um, okay, uh, another question from the audience here. Um, I think, I feel like this is a great researcher to researcher question. So um, so the, the question reads, the COVID crisis and the Great Recession seem different. COVID began exogenously while the Great Recession was endogenous to the economy. Uh, how are you thinking about this Potential difference in fundamental cause when making these counterfactual projections across economic downturns.
1: Yeah, um, so that's a, a good question. I think for uh, a lot of places, the so we've there's been work that has looked at the relationship between. Um, sort of, uh, what is it, Uh, home mortgage debt and sort of leverage in the housing markets to the subsequent downturn that happened. So you had that kind of variation across spaces. It technically started a year before the financial crisis itself. um, And that was a very sudden shock uh, that's really, I think, not too different from the, the kind of, when we're talking about sudden shocks uh, from what we're observing now, I do think that over the longer run, there's this very important difference. Um, and I think that electricity consumption over long time horizons is for some of the reasons we described before, not a very good uh, indicator for what is happening in the overall economy. But for these sudden shocks, uh, I think that the, the financial crisis in, was it September of 2008? Does that mm-hmm. sound right? Um, I think
0: it was October, but yep, yeah. very much stuck in the memory. Uh, yep.
1: Yeah, that, that was a, uh, a very sudden crisis in a similar sort of setting of like, when you're talking about a time horizon where things are moving fast enough that you don't have traditional economic indicators, that's where I think this would uh, provide the most value. Hmm,
0: great, Yeah. Okay, well, I want to uh, ask one other audience question, but this one will draw on your very interesting current experience. So we were talking just before we started broadcasting about your current location. Um, you are fortunate to be in the lovely country of Switzerland for the summer. And we were talking about how, um, you know, given the the different degrees that the pandemic has ebbed and flowed, uh, the response has been quite or the sort of current circumstances of opening in Switzerland are that look quite different than a lot of places in the US. And so um, I wondered if you could talk a little bit more, you mentioned a little bit about how these, pa- these demand patterns look different across different regions, but as time has gone on and you know, uh, lockdowns have sort of changed at different rates, um, is there anything more you can say about the sort of regional differences between recovery in a place like Switzerland compared to the US, or you mentioned Brazil and India were some other places, maybe just a little bit more about other, other contexts.
1: Uh, sure I mean I think that you you do see uh, differences in areas that correspond with the policies that they've enacted so a really good example of this is in Florida where um, you know everyone has sort of looked at Florida and been like Florida's behaving like Florida. Um, But Tallahassee actually had uh, a lockdown, and they report their electricity consumption separately from Florida power and light. Uh, And so even, you know, in very close proximity, you see a very different pattern uh, in electricity consumption between these two areas. I think that in the US, as we are easing lockdowns, to the extent that, you know, we don't have things in place that make it safe to go back to your normal life uh, with any confidence that the virus isn't spreading uncontrolled in the population. Uh, and so you would expect people to continue taking precautions, uh, including you know um, not going out to dinner or like many of the sort of things that keep a local economy running. Um, in Europe, you know, they've eased many of these restrictions, um, but electricity consumption is is still down. Um, I think that as, uh, you know, contact tracing apps, so Switzerland just uh, launched their contact tracing app today. Um, I think you'll start to, uh, really see economic behavior following the confidence that the virus is under control. Um, and if you don't have confidence that the virus is under control, whether you should be locked down or not, uh, I think is um, a distraction uh, from uh, thinking about like, what are the economic implications of, uh, of the virus
0: hmm Well, and as you noted right at the beginning, too, you know, the, the decrease in consumption started before the official lockdowns, and it sounds like it will continue after, which is, you know, again, a good indicator that this is more about um, overall comfort level, consumer comfort levels with being out in the world as opposed to any specific policy measures. But, um, well, Steve, this has been really interesting. I really appreciate it. I did want to close with our regular feature, which we call Top of the Stack. And uh, yeah, so we ask our guests to recommend just more good content. It could be a book. It could be an article, a podcast to our listeners. We've had some really awesome recommendations during the pandemic, during lockdown. Uh, People have gotten... Much more creative with the things they recommend on top of the stack. Uh, So feel free to recommend whatever works for you. But but what would you want to recommend to our listening audience?
1: Um, You know, it's really tough that there are so many different things happening now, all at the same time. Um, And so you know, I'm I'm very happy to be talking about uh, energy and environmental issues. Uh, I think. in terms of keeping up with some of the the other things going on in, in the world uh, there was a, a long article in the New York Times magazine this either this past week or, or coming week uh, on reparations that uh, I thought was very thoughtful and uh, and I recommend it
0: that's great Thanks. Yeah, we've actually had um, several of our guests sort of speak to the, to the other context in which we're having important dialogues these days. So um, thank you for that, for that extra recommendation. Pleasure. So Steve, I'm probably just gonna thank you again for your time. Uh, It's been a pleasure. Again, I thank you for experimenting in this new format with us. And um, yeah.
1: Pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: Of course. Okay. Uh, To our audience, thank you for chiming in. Uh, Again, this recording will be available in slightly edited version but available uh, on our regular podcast website, uh, Resources Radio, next Tuesday. So feel free to to check that out if you want to recapture any of the glory from this conversation back then. And be on the lookout for a couple of additional upcoming invitations for future podcasts and webinars in this series. Thanks, everybody. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Resources Radio. Thanks for tuning in. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. Resources Radio is a podcast from Resources for the Future. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C., Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. Learn more about us at rff.org. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the participants. They do not necessarily represent the views of resources for the future, which does not take institutional positions on public policies. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wassett, with music by Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.